Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana E. Ramirez. And I'm Carla Leon. Today, we're chatting with Paisley Rectal. Paisley Rectal is an American poet who is currently serving as Poet Laureate of Utah. She is the author of a book of essays entitled The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee, Observations on Not Fitting In, the memoir Intimate, as well as five books of poetry. For her work, she has received numerous fellowships, grants, and awards, including, but not limited to, a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Amy Lowell Poetry Traveling Fellowship, a Fulbright Fellowship, among others. She has been recognized for her poems and essays in the New York Times Magazine, American Poetry Review, the Kenyan Review, the New Republic, Tin House, the Best American Poetry Series, and on National Public Radio, just to name a few. We'll start with an excerpt from West, a translation, and then Carla and I will chat briefly before we play more from Rectal's performance of West at City of Asylum on September 2nd, 2019. Then we'll transition to an interview I just did with Rectal regarding West, the Ferrante issue of Asterix Journal, and Rectal's newest book, Appropriate, or Appropriate, depends how you want to say it. Finally, we'll talk about what we're reading and some thoughts for the road. Welcome. We're limited on time today, so let's jump right into Rectal's performance of West, a translation, live in Pittsburgh on September 2nd, 2019. Hi, thank you all for coming and thank you for having us. This has been delightful to hear everyone read. Um, my name is Paisley Rectal. I'm the Poet Laureate of Utah, and um, I'm going to present a little bit, just a really just a snippet of a project that I created. Uh, I was commissioned to write a poem for the 150th anniversary or celebration of the transcontinental. And I ended up writing a book length poem and it's a multimedia thing. Uh, you're going to see a little bit of it. I'm going to perform a little bit of it. There's a couple of things non-Utahns we need to know Robert Smithson, maybe some of you know the famous land artist Robert Smithson. He designed the Spiral Jetty, one of the greatest um, land art works uh, in America in the Great Salt Lake, but he deliberately chose it because of its proximity to Promontory where the two railroads met as a kind of commentary. And Brigham Young was the Mormon that brought the Mormons, the LDS, uh, into the valley. It was not Joseph Smith, just in case that's a question for anyone. Δεν είμαστε επιβάτε στο τρένο εμεί. Hokochi Well, what a 
an incredible company. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, okay, so let me give a little bit of a description of what the project is. Um, so Paisley Rectal was commissioned to write this amazing piece about the Union Pacific Railroad and how it was constructed. And I love that it is a translation because she brings in so much audio from all these different sources and interviews and archival pieces and puts it together to create a narrative of how, you know, our essentially our continental U.S. was united through this technology, but that it came at a really great human cost. And so yeah, I, and it was a commissioned piece, right? Yeah, which I think is so cool that people were like, oh, can you do something to celebrate the railroad? And it was like, yes, but not only am I going to celebrate, I'm going to talk about the dark underbelly of it too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's I remember watching her performance and the visual uh, elements that she incorporated into the performance just highlighted the impact that emotional like gravitas, you know, from know. the content of the of the work. Uh, it, it was so powerful. And honestly, like I, it just blew my mind. And it's one of those pieces and performances that you just learn from, so much from. Yeah, it's unearthing. It's unearthing yeah. like a secret history. Yeah. Which and I it makes is- you feel and then also like question. Mm-hmm. It propels you to this, like, like you said, like the dark underbelly. For me personally, I was, I just like needed to know more immediately. So I love poems that do that. Well, and, and it's not just that, but it, it also really talks about how we are complicit. Oh, absolutely. You know, the way yeah. that you, you can get on a plane or you can get, you know, on a means of transportation and you don't stop and think about like what it took to make this happen, mm-hmm. you know, from the environmental impact to the human impact. And um, it just makes you really think about what has been the cost of our technology and of our own comfort. Yeah, I love too how she said it. it affected pretty much every aspect of human life, you know, from Hollywood to farmers and like from the food on the table. I don't know, every aspect you couldn't get away with. Oh, yeah. I mean, it. it's one of those first steps of globalization, right? Where suddenly yeah, exactly. we became connected and people that had been living in pocketed communities. Now, all of a sudden, this like concept of a nation and a cultural mm. identity that's national begins to be formed. Um, yeah, it's amazing stuff. So um, for those of you interested in the visual, please feel free to go to westtrain.org and you can follow along with us as we play some of the audio here and some some curated selections from Rectal's performance uh, at City of Asylum. Let's continue the show. Sorrowful News. Sorrowful News, sings the telegram. And Lincoln's body slides from D.C. to Springfield, his infant son, Willie, boxed beside him. Buffalo, Cleveland, Painesville, Ashtabula, two coffins, 1,700 miles, 14 days on 14 railroads. One day, a great line will unite us, the president promised. Father and son displayed capital after capital, Louisville, New Albany, Baltimore, Chicago. The black trains beach upon a tide of roses. Can you believe still in the promise of this union? I saw, General Dodge wrote, a little Negro drop on his knees and offer prayers. While above, the dark news thrums on wires, gone, 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 gone across poles tall as the ones from which the president ordered 38 Sioux to be hung.
have knowledge. Immigration questionnaire given to Chinese claiming to be former U.S. residents or for Chinese entering the country during the Chinese Exclusion Act. Have you ridden in a streetcar? Can you describe the taste of bread? Where are the Joss houses located in the city? Do Jackson Street and DuPont run in a circle or a line? What is the fruit your mother ate before she bore you? How many letters a year do you receive from your father? Of which material is your ancestral hall now built? How many water buffalo does your uncle own? Do you love him? Do you hate her? What kind of birds sang at your parents' wedding? What are the birth dates for each of your cousins? Did your brother die from starvation, work, or murder? Do you know the price of tea here? Have you ever touched a stranger's face as he slept? Did it snow the year you first wintered in our desert? How much weight is a bucket and a hammer? Which store is opposite your grandmother's? Did you sleep with that man for money? Did you sleep with that man for love? Name the color and number of all your mother's dresses, now your village's rivers. What diseases of the heart do you carry? What country do you see when you think of your children? Does your sister ever write? In which direction does her front door face? How many steps did you take when you finally left her? How far did you walk before you looked back? Journey Robert Smithson on A.J. Russell's photo of the transcontinental. This excessiveness of men spilling, crowding to mark their ex of time and money, I find lamentable. The little moment composed of paper and light, alienated spike, relic, in the hands of those willing themselves be relics too. Nothing so linear as human ego and desire, while the past turns and returns, spirals, like these pelicans journeying over the red waters off Roselle, streams of purple, sodium, yucca rhymed with pustules of dust. Each one lifts, rises, finds what only some part of the cells remembers, nests in the wreck of what we've left, this bulk of ruined train, its wheel wells turned the rust of flaking blood. Of course, they trekked the human bodies from the crash back out. We care for our own. We care nothing for our own, making our lives material so as to free us all better to forget. Who remembers the names behind that photo's grasping fingers? Who recalls the dead the UP ferried from its crash? The medals they left, not as memorial to them, but because it cost less to leave the evidence than drag it all back out. Hold sorrow. Imagine a farm, a famine. Your mother promised you'll learn tailoring. Imagine your father pocketing $600. Now here's the boat, its black planks wet with fog. Here is the room holding a bed, no mirror, your wash basin. 
You have one window wired to face the street. He will keep his pants on, his greasy shirt, his shoes. Imagine the quarter pressed after into your palm. Your street will be named for presidents you never heard of, the city's lights like strings of blood in puddles. Imagine, if you could, you'd carve your father's name on a knife tip. At night, only the train cries. Your door locks from the outside. Miss Home. Ways to Die. Blasting accident, derailment, boiler crack. Crushed between trains crossing in the night. Electrocution, bad food, heart attack. You can work yourself to death, a la John, a la Henry. Or you can stay at home and die anyway. Fist and noose club gun knife in the back. Gossip, sharecropping, bottle of rum with gas-soaked rag. What is freedom but the power to choose where you won't die? What is a train but the self once yoked to terror loosed into a force that glides on heat and steam? You're so far from Mississippi, the UP boss said when we hit Rock Springs. Don't you miss your home? Miss home, I told him. I'm hoping to miss it entirely. Soil. Brigham Young to General Dodge, Union Pacific, 1869. The locusts hum at first was like a line of flame. Then the air burst into reds, silver-edged and filled with mouths like snapping scissors. They ate our wheat, blacked out the skies until the falling bodies settled like a fog over Great Salt Lake, the carcasses brined to a black and growing wall. We thought the soil here was rich, but who knew how rare rich was how terribly fragile, and how temperamental we'd become trying to sustain these plots too alkaline to keep a crop alive. Nothing natural but made in the beauty of this place. To create a home, we imported trees and water. We slashed and burned to excavate a state where nothing lived, nothing ruled us. And yet in all this nothing, we were subject to the rules nothingness demanded and allowed which requires every drop of blood from our bodies, all that we might plant and tend and love, that demands all might still be taken from us and fed to the abyss, not the faith on which I believe each soul is nourished. Nothing natural here but need. Our symbol, as you know, is the hive of bees, and yet in our strength of will, our number, perhaps you might picture us now like the locust, which arrives in waves to feed without satiety, which visits more regularly than rain and covers the earth not out of spite, but because they will survive. Dear General, all this we have endured, and now you think we should not remind you of the debt we're owed? We, who lobbied for this railroad, who agreed to unite this nation with you and bring the riches of the East west to tame its wilds? Do you wonder at our anger and our exigence? General, we worked your grading to Monument Point, and thousands drilled and blasted, rent the very foundations of the earth until these hills swarmed with our fresh encampments. We are patient, but we aren't fools. 
If we'd been a collection of mere individuals linked by money, long ago you'd have seen us crushed by weather, luck, and the Indian. Together, in faith, we have brought this place to heal. We can do more. Even the locusts, which once again have come to plague us, make little dent in our labors. Their dark trails that waver in the heat like iron bars are merely a mirage. Our kerchiefs dipped in camphor smell not like sweat and earth, but sweet water. They do not stifle nor blind us to the promise of the money your company offered, a promise which has gone now too many months unanswered. We are hungry for an answer, sir. We wait for your reply. Each morning, your railroad tunnel shakes with the reports of our artillery. You can hear them if you listen. The mountains reverberate from base to summit, ringing back our volleys with thunderous echoes, as if in anger. Earth. 1862 Railroad Act, Section 2. That the right of way through public lands granted to said company for the construction of railroad and telegraph, right, power, authority, hereby given to said company to take adjacent to the line, road, earth, stone, timber, Said right of way is granted to the extent the United States shall extinguish all lands falling and required for the said, with the welfare of the said, falling required for the said, Indians the said, grant herein made. Not ash, not gone, but changed. Not a body erased or born of grief alone, but praise. This country made us grow each another soul, not one for earth or heaven only, but nation, electric, dangerous as a third rail. We, the middle kingdom between white and its opposites, its thousand shades of fissure, our existence would compose into a fantasy of whole. Our bodies built more than a railroad. On my 1919 map, red, black, and yellow veins trace rails lengthwise across the states, the fragile paper splitting at its seams. Like any machine, we translate the magnitude of human force to change. We're history, not silent, not invisible, not a dream, not oil, they told me. The first trains ran on steam. We cannot count all the dead. This is the sound of a train. Δεν είμαστε επιβάτες στο τρένο εμείς.
Let's start off. Tell me a little bit about Appropriate and about this project and the reception that it's gotten. So Appropriate or Appropriate, uh, however you want to say it, it works both ways. Um, It's a book about cultural appropriation in literature. And I was approached by an editor uh, at Norton a few years ago who had seen a Facebook post that I'd written and said, you know, would you be interested in writing about cultural appropriation? Because the post that I'd written had been in response to the poem How To by Anders Carlson Lee, which had caused quite a stir in social media and was picked up by mainstream media too, which is, you know, when we're writing in the voices of people unlike ourselves, do we cross a line? And if so, what is that line? Can we always recognize it? And I had written about what happens if we take away the dialects um, that's in How To. It's basically a poem supposedly in the voice of somebody who's homeless, right. um, somebody who may or may not be African-American, someone who may or may not be from Appalachia, um, identities that Carlson we himself did not possess. And so a lot of people kind of jumped on the poem. So I, I kind of thought about it and I looked at the poem and I said, if you take away the dialect, what's left? Mm-hmm. What are some of the questions that get raised? And also I, I, did take seriously the fact that Carlson, we, we not only pulled the poem after getting a very negative reception, but also apologized and people were still jumping on Carlson. Lee. So I said, you know, and if, if someone does offer an apology, what do we think an apology means? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be part of a literary community when we, you know, do harm or and when we want to make amends, do we accept that? So the editor had reached out to me and said, do you want to write a book about cultural appropriation? And I thought, not at this moment, not in this social media climate. No, that sounds like death. But, you know, I've been teaching for many, many years, over 20 years now. And this question about what it means to write in the voice of somebody unlike yourself or write even involving characters unlike yourself in your short stories, in your novels, in your poems, this comes up in every single workshop. And it felt a little intellectually dishonest to sort of say, I didn't want to talk about this subject or write about this subject when I've been talking and thinking about it for years. Mm -hmm. And what would it mean to sit down and actually think about this? So that's what this book is. It's a series of six epistolary essays written to an imagined student based on conversations I've actually had in the classroom. I didn't know it was an imagined student. Yes, it is an imagined student because otherwise that'd be a FERPA violation. Fair Uh, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, so, but I wanted, and it was important to me, some people have, a lot of people have asked me about that, um, why address this book as a series of letters to somebody. And one of the reasons is that uh, it, you know, when we start writing essays, pedagogical kind based essays on a, a topic as thorny as cultural appropriation, I think it can it make somebody like myself kind of get a little bit more didactic than I wanted mm. to be. I wanted to be able to backtrack, to change my mind, to qualify, to bring in the personal experiences that I've had. I'm biracial. I'm a writer. Um, I can see it from a, a variety of sides. Kind of um, getting back to the like Montaigne notion of the essay, right? Exactly. To, to attempt to try to kind of be mm-hmm. working it out. And so you found like the epistolary worked and gave you something to kind of yeah. uh, jump off of, if you will. Yeah, yeah. No, it really allowed me that kind of freedom to um, to back, like I said, to backtrack, to try. I think it's a great way of saying it. You know, to you know, essays are attempts. They're they're 
they're modes of thinking. Mm. Um, they're not necessarily conclusions. And I thought that that was important because I don't really trust anyone who feels like they have a definitive answer on what cultural appropriation um, should be or do or what it actually, <laughs> what harms or what benefits it brings to us as readers right. and as writers. I think that it's possible that cultural appropriation can do, or I should say appropriation in literature can do multiple things at the exact same time. And to hold all of those things in our minds as we're going forward is in some ways the delight, the anxiety of, uh, and the challenge of literature. And I wanted to be able to explore all of those avenues. And a letter really allowed me that. I would also say that by imagining a particular student, it actually forced me to imagine what that particular person would need. And so my editor was at first a little dismayed that um, I was writing it specifically to a young white male. Hmm. But the reality is um, if I was writing this letter or these series of letters to uh, a student of color, I might not have the exact same conversation. I might be able to skip over some steps with maybe the flawed assumption that that student would already be on the same page as me around certain issues of history, certain I, issues. I think that's a really fair point though, because as I was reading, I found like the things I found myself commenting on or quibbling with even mm -hmm. were things that were nuance that we can talk about as two people of color. Right. I mean, I probably wouldn't have to explain the long-term effects of colonialism and the long-term effects of Orientalism to right. somebody who is a student of color. They would have, if they didn't necessarily know Orientalism because they had not necessarily read um, Edward Said, they would understand that viscerally. Mm. And I think I wanted to gesture towards some of that, that visceral uh, knowledge that people of color possess around this this very topic, while at the same time giving that kind of history. And I would also say there are places where I think it's important for both students of color or readers of color, writers of color and uh, white writers to, that, that they will share a space, which is to, to redefine some of the terms. Because I do think that this is one thing that all of us do pretty badly, which is that we lump together all of these different types of artistic practices under one heading. And, you know, when we think of appropriation as only material and literary cultural appropriation, that's a very worst form of appropriation. Mm -hmm. But there's all sorts of activities of appropriation that we're engaged in individually every day. And it's also a sort of fantasy to sort of say only certain people, certain writers are engaged in appropriation and others are somehow released from that. Um, we are all, in some respects, um, encouraged to and uh, participating in acts of appropriation, but they don't have the same cultural or historical effects. And that's something to also bring to the fore, which is, you know, when we've got writers of color who are writing in the voices of white writers, yeah, that's an act of appropriation, but it's also something that um, historically doesn't have the same kind of resonance or valence. And also it's a performance that has been drilled into right, uh, right. readers of color and writers of color because that has been for so long the default position in literature. You know, okay, Carla is going to laugh as I say this because I do manage to bring up Eurovision way more than anyone <laughs> ever should. Okay. <laughs> but I was um, just listening to old Eurovision playlists, as you do. And there was this song from 2018 that was a country song. 
um, performed by a band from the Netherlands. Mm. And I sent it to a friend who's a Southern, a white Southerner, who is a very country music person. Um, I grew up in Texas um, and I sent them this link and they were like trying to articulate why they were offended. Mm. And they were like, well, how can a Dutch person understand, you know, like country comes from the South and this mm. moment of Southern like resistance and <laughs> to the North and, you know, all of these things. And, and I, I looked at him, you know, and I didn't quite look at him because we were on, you know, FaceTime, <laughs> but I, I looked at him through the screen and I said, you know, I think you're talking about appropriation. Mm. Um, and I was, I was reading you and he's like, well, no, because I'm white, that's not appropriation and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, you know, I think... <laughs> We need to like unpack our terms here. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> you know, thing, and right? so, and so, you know, but that's something we don't think about is like, you know, the way that like white Southern culture, like somebody from the South might feel like <gasps> a little prickly about somebody who is Dutch, like singing a country song. Yeah. And, and that's the funny thing because, you know, <laughs> my very first reaction to this, as you're telling this story is to think about, I'm sure this person must have listened to Beyonce's Lemonade, right? Oh, like yeah. There's a classic where she goes and she does a classic pitch perfect country song. And people and got it's big a moment. mad. People got yeah. big mad about that though. But what's interesting about that, and to a certain extent, Percival Everett's short story, um, Appropriation of Cultures, which I talk about in Appropriate, uh, sort of deals with this too, which is that there's a kind of fantasy that all of us have about our cultures that only, you know, certain bodies, certain historical positions, certain, you know, you know, <laughs> um, certain gendered positions and ability positions actually are able to perform these, you know, aspects of culture and that they somehow don't get shared in ways that we, you know, obviously we can't control that. And if, and it creates a lot of pain, right? I think right. all of us have seen parts of our cultures taken um, and performed badly and, and certainly with very racist um, intent. And so, of course, we get fierce when we see this. But there's also this thing that happens where, you know, black and white Southern culture has you can't really pull them apart. Oh, and no, you can't. You and can't. Latino, and Latino culture in Texas is exactly right. Inter intertwined, intertwined. Right. So it becomes a fantasy to sort of say only a certain person is going to be able to perform a country Western song. Mm -hmm. But then also to take that internationally, which is what happens, you know, if somebody from another culture entirely takes a musical traditional form or um, something that we isolate in one cultural context and with having a particular political meaning and they perform that. And that can be a really interesting and, and rich discussion to have because sometimes it feels like, well, you're just taking it because you don't understand. Oh. But if you're thinking about other people who are looking at hip hop and saying, well, hip hop actually speaks to, you know, systems of power and they're there to critique it. How is it that I can import hip hop traditions to speak, you know, truth to power to the the kinds of oppressions that, you know, I'm experiencing in my own culture? Um, and that yeah. is, in fact, how hip hop has, you know, has traveled across the world. I, I think a wonderful example of this, and I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's a, a Puerto Rican writer named Edward Banks, and he wrote mm -hmm. this phenomenal book called Heavy Metal Africa. Because he's he's a huge heavy metal guy. Um, and he was like, he spent a couple of years living. And I think um, I'm going to get the country wrong. So I'm going to say Central Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and he got 
really into the heavy metal scene. And so he ends up writing this book that is a tour of the continent and all of the different heavy metal scenes that he encounters there. And it's also kind of doing what you're saying and thinking about like, you know, we think of heavy metal as a white genre, and yet it is about speaking truth to power and about, you know, in some ways like the the rage that comes with poverty and disenfranchisement. Um, And so it translated so well into certain like subcultures um, in, you know, on the African continent. And I just... It, it's so funny how people react to like the concept of it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and because it's it, weird, it, it speaks to, I think, you know, and I share this too. I think all of us, we can't help but share this desire for kind of authenticity, right? That there's, there's a particular cultural expression, there are particular behaviors or something that only certain people have and will perform and, and, and are, are native or, you know, native indigenous to them, right? Like they, they are you know, authentic to them. And that's what we're all sort of in pursuit of. But the fact also is, and it's a really distressing one, you know, we are kind of constantly taking different types of performances and suturing them to our identities. And we are ourselves a kind of conglomeration of these portraits of, of other people's ideas of authenticity. So, you know, one of the things that I think is so important and going back to your example is when someone performs back something that we don't imagine is authentically them, what is it that they've identified about the form, the ritual, the, you know, the song or whatever, what, what is it that they've identified and how have they translated it? And we may still be offended. We may still be maybe even rightfully angry about that. Right. Like there's definitely certain types of performances that like, if I was to observe a Hopi dance, it's a sacred dance and then turn it into some sort of, you know, like visual art project or something like that. That's, that's absolutely a violation, but other things that are meant to be shared cross-culturally or shared, you know, pretty widely, like, like many musical um, forms that we, we engage in. Then the question becomes, what are we seeing? What are we translating? How are we maybe in our acts of appropriation, maybe not only commenting on the original forms, but turning it into something new that allows us to better express our own authentic individuality. And that's where it gets really sticky because of course you are trafficking in somebody else's ideas of their territory and sometimes their actual communal memory, but those shared forms sometimes lead to greater global connection and a sort of understanding of shared political um, changes and grievances even. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, you, you speak so much to kind of how it's all a delicate balance and it's all like yeah. a delicate dance. I, I actually wrote in the back, I feel a certain pressure to start all my questions with what for and why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's actually quite useful because, I mean, it, you know, it's exhausting. It'd be much easier to sort of say, okay, when someone does this, we know automatically always and for sure it's a racist act of appropriation. Right. There's no rubric. Yeah. 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 There's, there are some things that are pretty obvious, right? Um, you know, anything that looks like a kind of minstrelsy generally is, but, but there are a lot of different forms of art and literature that we see all the time that we sort of pass on as, as successful. So the question is why, what is it that we're seeing in them? And so asking why and what for really does 
help us because they start to ask more nuanced questions about why it is that certain performances of um, other people's stories, songs, identities don't bother us. And some really do, because that tells us something not only about the fantasies we have about our identities, but it also tells us about the ways in which we understand how race, ability, gender can be translated um, and and refracted in, in very useful and very powerful ways through literature. Well, and I also really appreciated that you went through the risks. You know, there are certain risks, risks of erasure and, you know, risks of kind of silencing and risks of stereotyping. You know, I, I kept thinking back to your discussion of like um, Lionel Shriver and, you know, how she wore a sombrero. And I just kept thinking about how like, Oh man, the sombrero is such a complicated image for Mexicans. Yeah. Because it's tied to charro culture specifically, right? And so you're looking at essentially like the equivalent of a cowboy hat. And it yet it has somehow become a symbol for like my entire country. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and usually in like a horrible way. Like usually it's like the sombrero kind of blocking out your head or it's comically large and ridiculous yeah. looking and evocative of like Speedy Gonzalez and you know <laughs> And so you're, you're looking at this thing and you're just like, oh, you know, like one of the most internationally recognizable symbols of being a Mexican is actually not very accurate or in any yeah. way a mainstay of Mexican life. Yeah. Um, and yet it is sh- cultural shorthand in a lot of respects. Uh, and so I was like, that's so icky the way it kind of erases and flattens. And you, you talk yeah. about this a lot, but I, I think you do it in a way that isn't accusatory to student X and that isn't, I didn't feel defensive for the student. Yeah. Uh, yeah, That's good. You were very kind. Um, Did that take a lot of patience? (laughs) No, because I started out in my depiction imaginatively to the letter in the letters thinking of a lot of the students that I've had and most I mean, 99.999% of my students, they're really well-meaning. Mm-hmm. They they really do want to try to get it right or to to approach it with that no one no one starts this with you know wanting to hurt somebody. And um most of them take a lot of um kind of <laughs> difficult conversations and workshop really, really well. And mm. so I when I went in with that, I thought, okay, well, I'm gonna talk to the student with respect because, you know, that's the way I try to do it in the classroom anyway. But then also I I do believe that a lot of people are just trying to think through these issues carefully and with nuance and very few people and workshop I found, and I've been lucky this way, very few people get defensive about this. They usually kind of come in with a lot of humility around this topic. Maybe that's the influence of social media, ethnic studies classes that are being taught on Mm -hmm. campus. Um, People are much more, people are living incredibly diverse lives now. So people are not as in some ways segregated from each other. And so they might be seeing a lot more of these conversations happening in their own homes. I blame TikTok. Um, Yeah, TikTok. Yeah, it it might be just all TikTok. Um, I I wanted to shift gears slightly um, and think about, there's a lot about voice 
And there's a lot about thinking about the relationship between, you know, speaker and content, right? Um, going back to like, um, you know, the poem, how to, and, you know, the, the embodied existence of the poet um, versus, you know, the voice in the poem. And yet um, recently for Asterix, you engaged in the Ferrante project, which mm. sort of strips it, to some degree, the notion of background or biography or that embodiment, right? It's a, it's, you know, about the freedom of anonymity. Um, mm. And yet so many of the pieces within the Fronte project engage with topics of race and topics mm-hmm. of culture and That's topics of power. Um, and so, you know, considering your work in Appropriate Appropriate, you know, how do you kind of negotiate that stripping of identity to some degree in the Ferrante project in which, you know, you also participated? I think that's a great question. And I hadn't even thought about that, but it's true that so many of us, when asked to uh, strip our identities, went back to something that would look like we reify another kind of identity. And I think when one of the things that really strikes me now, thinking about your question and thinking about what I did, was that when, when your writerly identity is erased there's a certain way in which a readerly assumption is also erased. Would they be more likely to listen to something about the experience of being a person of color, a woman of color, if they were not presented with a name that specifically said um, this particular identity, this particular kind of thing? Uh, Would they be more or less likely to hear something that, that would be um, they couldn't have heard if they knew it was you. Mm. And I think, I think that there's, there's something about that, but it is interesting that maybe none of us in the end can give up. I mean, obviously when you're writing, you're writing about a, 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 an identity, right. And you're, you're creating a character, whether the character exists or does not exist. And even, even not in nonfiction, when you're writing, I mean, you're creating yourself as a character who may or may not, totally embody all the things you really are in life. And the idea of somehow removing yourself from the identities that everyone has already associated with you from other forms of writing or from just being able to Google what you look like, you know, allows you to maybe more carefully inhabit the, the identity you want to construct on the page, whether that is more authentic or less authentic. I think the assumption was that maybe you would say something you felt that you were inhibited to say in your embo- actually embodied life. I found that that was in a little bit true for me because um, I found myself wanting to sort of say some things that might be considered politically incorrect about the ways that we're seeing maybe um, some aspects of a gendered identity. And, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I was like, you know, would I not have said this in another kind of context? I'm, I'm not totally sure. I'm not entirely sure. To be honest, I think I would have to do it for a lot more. I would have to write many, many more pieces to sort of find out what what would I, what would I get actually from writing in a voice that was supposedly not my own, but was still utterly my own. Have you ever written under a pseudonym? I have. Um, yeah, I wrote pornography. <laughs> oh, God. I wrote a little pornography. Um, you yeah, know, so I wrote for money. 
<laughs> so, um, yeah, soft I mean, I've been a little bit of the, uh, yeah, soft porn. It was not your <laughs> nugget. And I'm not saying what the name was either, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I've definitely done a little bit of that. Um, I, you know, but the question is, you know, and I've even played with the idea of writing a novel now and not a soft porn novel, <laughs> like an actual literary novel, you know, to sort of see that. I will, I will say this. I've talked to um, a friend of mine who's a poet and one thing that we've both kind of worried about as we get older and more established as writers and we get known for having a particular kind of um, voice and we also get known for, you know, we just have a, a kind of respect. Well, you're the, you're the poet laureate. There's a gravitas that comes with yeah. that. I can't yeah. be writing softcore porn as. <laughs> no, no, you cannot do that. Um, but also, you know, do our editors less likely to edit you because they're like, mm. well, we just want this name or, you know, are, are they less likely to um, take a really hard look at your writing? I mean, I, I've seen writers out there who, as they as they age, get a little like worse over time, and I wonder if it's because editors are too—they um, just bow down to the name and just sort of accept that. And so there's a, a weird practical desire to go in and restart your career, so that someone can continue to make you a better writer. Like good editors have to be fearless. They have to be like, I, I'm not afraid. I, I'm the one maybe more in control of this than you. Um, and that's- I can't imagine editing somebody like Stephen King, like who's right. written books like on writing. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. And But then again, uh, and I'm not talking about Stephen King here, but because I, I, I don't know about his later work, but I'm sure that there are other writers where you read some of their later work and you're like, God, what was the editor? Did the editor just fall asleep? I feel like I've had that conversation a lot. And I wonder how much that is is sort of like we've got x and so you know so and so's book here we can't possibly so. no i agree with that i mean without uh, naming names because yeah wants to be that guy but they're no definitely they're definitely yeah. books where i mean i can even say this about like kurt vonnegut right like kurt yeah vonnegut later work you can tell that somebody was like oh you're kurt vonnegut Nail in the say to you? yeah 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 <laughs> okay yeah fine. and no one wants to be that person so there is a there's a benefit to starting out and um there's a benefit to being the new writer uh and part of it is your own imaginative freedom and another part of it is like maybe you'll get more honesty all right, but let, let me be devil's advocate here and say that, you know, there's also on the um, other side, there are white writers who have adopted yes. the names of people of color in order to lend themselves yes. some authenticity, right? Um, yes. Curious, your pseudonym, your um, is it white? Was it a white name that you wrote porn under? <laughs> I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, I'm not okay. going to say, I'm just, I mean, let me, <laughs> like, was it a racialized name? Um, no, I mean, I tried to strip it so that you wouldn't know. I mean, you couldn't even guess what the gender would be. Oh, so it's like all ah, initials. You know? <laughs> it's all initials. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I know what's going to happen after this. Like the only thing I was like, Paisley Rectal pornography. No, no. There's only five people that listen to the podcast. Don't worry. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And all four um, of them. <laughs> no, but you know, um, like, have you ever wanted to take on a different cultural identity with a different name? Do you think that that's okay? How does that work out? Do we approach that with the same kind of like, oh, that's so funny. I would immediately write under a white male's name. 
Right. I would. I would. Well, with a name like Paisley Rectal, to be honest, like most of my life, I've just been thinking, God, what would my career be like if I had a name that did not just scream something either medical or something, you know, like it didn't sound like a rainbow colonoscopy, right? Like this <laughs> terrible, terrible. I, I would have gone with fashion designer, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, when people hear my name at first, they're like, oh my Lord, you know, how did you, I mean, I could have come in. If my nick, my, my middle name was Unicorn is the only only way it could have possibly gotten worse. So I would go for a name that was utterly anodyne. And I probably would have chosen something that would have signaled like a white male name. Um, yeah. And yeah. John Smith, the fourth. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Winslow something or other. Yeah. That's pretty you know? good. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's always one of those things that I think is very difficult because you think of anonymity as freeing, right? The stripping of voice, but then you have the danger of somebody kind of weaponizing it in some right. way, right? And so, and then um, conversely, identity the same way. Um, and so, yeah, what do you make of people that really like change their names to, you know, Chinese sounding names in order to gain, without publicizing who they are, um, you know, or who take on a Native American identity, even though they are white? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this specifically in the context of academia recently, because there's just been a slew of academics who have come out um, or have been outed as fake Puerto Ricans. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Fake, you know, pretendians, um, fake Puerto Ricans, fake, you know, you know, fake Cuban you know, uh, emigres. I mean, and it happens. It, it's, I think there were like nine just this last year alone. And so the question is why, I mean, these are people who are, I mean, all of them are very intelligent. All of them have published multiple books. Some of them are at the pinnacle of their career. There was a New York right. times profile of a young, not a young woman, a, 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 a scholar, a native American scholar who turns out not to have been a native American at all, but she and her sister are doubling down on this, um, you know, insistence that they are Cherokee. So the question is, why does this happen? And I think you nailed it before. Why are they always Cherokee? Okay. Right. Well, and it's because it's, it's the hardest to prove Cherokee. The Cherokee nation was one of the more liberal nations, as it turns out in in terms of enrollment and and accepting Mm. people, but then also because the Cherokee were so displaced. And so there's, there's a lot of different people who could claim, you know, uh, yeah, I grew up on the East Coast, but I'm Cherokee, like, because I'm in the, you know, Midwest and I'm Cherokee. So there's, it's, it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of reasons. It's a way of too. gaining some type of authenticity, you think? Like, oh, absolutely. It's a way of gaining authenticity. It is, as you pointed out, it's a way of, um, in the marketplace, distinguishing yourself, capitalizing on what they imagine is the, the marketplace value of not being white. And, you know, we can talk about that as a fantasy, but there's some, some level of reality to that, especially when we think of academia, where academia fetishizes, um, and for good reason. All right. I mean, I don't, (laughs) I've been in academia long enough and, and we've had these very uncomfortable conversations in hiring, which is say you're hiring an Asian American, you know, literary position and you get five great top candidates and four Asian American and one is white. Do we not 
look at the white candidate, um, you know, at all, because one of the questions is, do we want the body as well as the scholarship? Because we may say that's a form of, um, again, fetishization and, 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 and a perverse form of affirmative action. But the reality is that students are, are learning on multiple levels, not just through the lectures that the person is giving, but also through the presence. It matters. It matters if the person in front of you is also a member of that that world they're teaching you about because suddenly, you know, you're having a, a full relationship with that. And so you may think of that in a very cynical way, but it, it does have power. So when academia says simultaneously, okay, we now need to hire so much more diversity in terms of the scholarship, the literary studies, but then the bodies that represent these, you know, fields of study also matter. You create a perfect storm. You create the perfect conditions for these kinds of frauds to take root. And it's the same thing in the publishing world where they say, we absolutely need more diversity and we need more, you know, people who come authentically from this, these backgrounds. So of course you're going to get people who maybe are white, who, who think this is a great opportunity to well, get and in some ways it's getting to exploit, right? Like the exactly. comfort of whiteness while yeah. still getting to check the box for diversity. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so everyone gets to feel good and nobody questions the authenticity because if you do, then you kind of have to think about, you know, your own relationship to darkness. Yeah. Which is complicated. It is complicated, right? It is extraordinarily complicated. But again, that word authenticity, right? Like that we're all invested in. We're all invested in preserving it, hiring it, publicizing it, marketing it. Um, And authenticity is, as it turns out, it's one of the easiest things to fake in worlds in which so few representations come through that we can't really identify what authenticity is or we're not Whereas we're hesitant to call it out right. if you think it, this is, you know, a good or a bad performance. Well, and then authenticity itself gets tricky, right? Because what's authentic, what lives in the cultural imagination of people or what right. actually happened, um, yeah. you know, which I think, um, you know, allows us to kind of think about West Train a little bit, right? And is, you know, we have this notion of like the railroad as being this amazing American achievement, the transcontinental thing, you know, there's famous pictures of presidents in top hats shaking hands mm-hmm. um, and in the cultural imagination we think of it as a very positive thing. And yet, you know, in looking at your work on the project, it's a lot more complex and it's looking at the kind of dark underside of it and the way that we treated people and the way that we categorize people. And even though I'm an American immigrant, I think of myself as American. So I'm including myself in this we, because I think it's important to kind of consider our own accountability in how we define authenticity and authentic narratives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So for West, um, a translation, which is this poem I was commissioned to write um, because Utah State Poet Laureate and it's um, the Transcontinental's 150th completion was coming in 2019. And that was completed in Utah Promontory Summits. So they wanted a poem to commemorate this. And, you know, when they reached out to me, it was really it was really an honor. And I was really delighted because. I mean, again, my name does not signal Asian American. My appearance does not necessarily automatically signal that as well. And they have no idea that you know half my family came from the very area where almost all of the Central Pacific Chinese American workforce came from. Hmm. So I was really happy to write 
this poem because I was like, I don't think they know what they're going to get. And in fact, they did not know what they were going to get, but they were happy with the result. Um, you know, because I wanted to really think of the that history and it's all its monumentality, that it's not simply a poem celebrating and commemorating the completion of the railroad without actually thinking of the tremendous, what the railroad means. What is it done for to the country and what is it done for all of the nations that are inside this nation mm. all of the different people who were either displaced by or worked on the railroad and continue to work on the railroad i mean the story of the railroad is the story of immigration and assimilation it is the story of um, displacement and genocide it's also the story of radical environmental change it's the story of the change of time the very ways in which we reimagine time into to different time zones. It's, it, it re, reimagines what an American culture can be by trying to unite as, uh, West and East together so that people can share these different cultural performances, you know, on the, the coasts. Um, it creates tourism. It, you know, it changes Hollywood. It changes gender roles. It changes racial roles on the train. The ways in which people who before lived very private lives were suddenly now traveling in very public ways. You know, etiquette guidebooks were written specifically to figure out how do you travel on trains. There's not one single aspect of American culture that was not touched by the train and changed by it. And so to, to create that, um, I had to figure out how to put all that information to one poem. And it wasn't until I was looking at these poems, Chinese poems carved into the walls of Angel Island. What if I just took one of these Chinese poems and character by character turned it into a way of looking at one aspect of the railroad, usually a worker's history, something around immigration, race, um, but the environment, war, I mean, it had a big impact on uh, the ways we were thinking about you know, post-Civil War reconstruction and also just, you know, is the train finally useful for moving munitions across the country? So if there's another Civil War that starts, we can just immediately go out there. That's one of Lincoln's ideas about the train. Well, and not to mention the displaying of Lincoln's own body, which you right. bring yeah, the you know, display of Lincoln's of- body. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, the I was thinking a lot about Chinese death rituals and the display or the removal of bodies. And that happened, you know, they, the Chinese, when they died, they often had um, somebody come, you know, basically dig them up and ship the bones back to China so that they would not be left on these foreign shores. They would go back oh. home. And it's the same thing where Lincoln is, dis- you know, Lincoln's you know, young son, Willie is disinterred and Lincoln and Willie um, travel back on the railroad to be buried in Illinois in the family plot. So there's just, you know, there's so many different weird echoes and reverberations and similarities and wild differences. So um, I made it into a digital poem, a multimedia digital poem, and there's archival material you can look at too. And it's going to come out um, as a book with Copper Canyon in about a year or two. So um yeah, I mean, it's a monumental thing. I mean, I just spent three years reading about it. And okay, we are almost out of time. And I'm so sad because I like want to keep talking to you. So I, I, I guess I wanted to end with sort of one last question, which was thinking about the way that you incorporate archival footage and kind of how that reverberated with a lot of what I was thinking about, what you were writing about in um, Inappropriate Appropriate and, and sort of, you know, who owns what image. Um, and I also want to add a note that one of my favorite things structurally about this is the way that it really felt like because we were taking individual words and we were Mm -hmm. sort of actually doing the act of 
digging in and delving yeah. and zooming in. And I, that felt wonderful. Um, so okay. that note aside, um, I guess I want to think about the relationship of the two works, given the use of, you know, so many pictures and images and sounds um, mm -hmm. that are, you know, archival and not necessarily of your own production. Thank you. It's a great question. Um, I was thinking a lot about towards the end of this of the scholarship of Cristina Rivera Garza, and she has a wonderful essay called Disappropriation. And her argument is what happens uh, when <laughs> I, I'm going to really bastardize their argument, which is quite complex. But one of the things that she says is essentially like when you know, workers' bodies are owned, essentially, or, or when other cultural productions are owned by corporations, what is an appropriative act by going into archives, taking these archival materials, but, re, you know, reinvesting a different kind of ownership and insisting on a communal ownership? And I, I liked that idea a lot, especially around this. I mean, the West is an appropriative project because I actually go into certain oral history archives and I, you know, go into the oral history archives of African-American porters and I, you know, use their narratives to string together a series of, you know, short poems. And I use um, the narratives of Irish Americans or Irish workers as well. I use those archives and create other poems out of that. Um, and these are deeply appropriative acts. And some people might think of them as really kind of politically problematic. But I was thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, what is the train, the cologne? It is a colonial project. A trains are. Um, it was absolutely about trying to insist upon the labor of other people to forge a nation in which everyone could be assimilated into a national project. And there is something really powerful about going back into the archive and finding the voices that specifically were critiquing that very project. They, these people were not unaware of what was happening to them and, and why it was happening to them and what was being done sort of against their interest. And there's something about making sure that some of these critiques can get shared and held um, and seen by more and more people. Um, and, you know, with Garza's um, final argument is like, what happens if books are finally nothing but notes? And I thought that was a really beautiful way of saying it, which is that oftentimes we create these imaginative, you know, lit forms of literature, but going back into the archive and and, and seeing the, the, the very factual information that people have gathered, have left and stuff like that, like that, maybe that's your actual book. That's your actual. Oh, it gave me chills. The idea of like taking ownership of pictures that were taken by institutions yeah. and yeah. then just the idea of like, you know, when you, when you inhabit a body that is usually, um, you know, the subject of the photograph, but not the subject taking the photograph. Right. right. Um, and, and that, that shift of taking ownership again, oh, gives me, yeah. I'm still getting chills. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was such an amazing conversation and we were so excited to have you and it's been such a pleasure. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking about this and I'm always happy to talk about either of these projects. So thanks for the invitation. It was terrific. So Carla, I'm going to kick off our talk by asking you a question. How do you feel about cultural appropriation? And have you ever encountered it on a personal oh. level? Yeah. Wow. The, the question is so real because I encounter it pretty much every day um, on both ends. You know, I really have to ask myself and uh, like, how am I appropriating someone else's 
um, certain aspect of culture. That's food, music, uh, you know, even uh, have you ever Have you ever gotten vacation cornrows? No, no, my gosh, no, 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 no. I know better. I I see, but I, okay, okay. See, you're saying it all like with like, of course I know better. I'm making faces because I can see you on Zoom, even though you're in California. Yes, I totally am. Now I'm embarrassed, but I was a child. But like, if you're in the beach in Colombia, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There's hundreds of people wandering around saying, trencitas, trencitas, I'll braid your hair. Like it's a super normal thing that people do in Colombia. And so I would come back from vacation in Colombia with still my little cornrows sometimes because I'd wear them for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never thought twice about it until yeah. I became an adult. And then I had to be like, oh, snap. You know, but I think mm-hmm. I, the last time I got them, I was probably like 20. You know, (laughs) it's just like, uh, so I have to take that back, honestly, because, okay. So I never got like vacation cornrows, uh but I did once put my hair in little tiny buns everywhere, which I was trying to go for like a Gwen Stefani look. Yeah. I was about to say very nineties, very nineties. Yeah. But at the same time, where was Gwen Stefani getting it from? You know, like Mm. back then I didn't know. And she was wearing a bindi. I was wearing a bindi. Like, Okay, yeah, totally, totally guilty of appropriating cultures that, you know, honestly, that I admire, you know, like, and I want to respect and honor those cultures. And I will very much, maybe I didn't know this, you know, in the 90s, but now I, I, I'm i fully like not wearing bindis anymore, even though I, even though I know the meaning. Well, you could you wear know, a bindi. I mean, I mean and, and I think that's kind of, that was like, you know, Paisley Rectal's point was that right. you have to do it respectfully and you have to yeah. think about what you're doing. And, you know, the two guiding questions are, why am I doing this and what mm-hmm. for? Mm-hmm. Uh, which are kind of the same, right? So like, why? What 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 do you get from it? And so, um, yeah, I think you can wear a kimono. You just can't wear a kimono and then do something stereotypically Japanese in it, right? Yeah. And I'll, and I'll, get, I'll tell you a story. It's a story where I almost got into a fight, which means it's a good story. Um, no, it's not. The <laughs> <laughs> so one, I think it was Halloween. Yeah, it was Halloween. Some friends of mine got married on Halloween in Seattle, which is why I was in Seattle on a Halloween night. And we were hanging out of a bar in the University of Washington campus area. So it was college students. And I walk into this bar and I'm in like my super hot leather goth dress, uh, like I do. And (laughs) I see this girl dressed like a taco. And I was like, okay, she loves tacos, that's fine. And then she stands up and she puts on a sombrero and her glued on mustache and her blanket and a bottle of tequila. And then I, it dawns on me that she's not dressed up as a taco. She's dressed up as a Mexican. Mm, wow. And as a Mexican, <laughs> right. uh, I have many, many, many feelings about this. And so I may have gone up to her and been like, yo, what are you in costume as? And she was like, I'm a Mexican taco. And I was like, hmm, hmm. Mm. And I was like, you know, it's not cool. (laughs) 
and I was just trying to stress that it wasn't cool. And then her yeah. boyfriend came up and he was like, why are you in my girlfriend's face? And you know, I'm like five two, but I am chubby. So I guess I could be intimidating. And <laughs> so he starts screaming. Then my husband comes up and he starts screaming. Everyone starts screaming. We leave the bar because we're like, okay, whatever. Like we got to get out of this scene. And we're standing outside with a friend who's smoking a cigarette and the dude follows us outside the bar and he starts screaming at us about how he is not racist. Mm-mm. Right. And then there's this moment his girlfriend is not racist and how is it possible that we are choosing the worst possible interpretation of her outfit and I just remembered being like wow like you are so mad about even the implication of Mm -hmm. cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's like no introspection that didn't exist you know and when someone gets defensive that's like number one red flag that they're utterly guilty and I can only imagine like I that scene is is so familiar Mm. what is it about appropriation that upsets people so much when they're called out on it I I don't know it's like being accused of stealing Mm -hmm. (laughs) like if someone accuses me of stealing anything I'd be like oh snap did I steal it hold on Mm -hmm. (laughs) let me first confirm that no theft has occurred (laughs) right yeah and and like Paisley talks about authenticity you know and it reminds me of Frida Kahlo for example you know she you could say appropriated perhaps um, some indigenous uh, wardrobe, you know, like she's, it's fully on record that she did that intentionally, but she was, she was definitely honoring um, her, you know, her heritage in a way, but she also wanted to, like she knew the power of, of, of fashion and dress and in the forties uh, to like be dressing like a, a indigenous person. Well, you know? and, and in Galo's sense, it was really interesting mm. because, you know, she's half German. Her father is German. Right. And her last name is German. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Frida comes from, you know, um, Freya, Freya. Right. Um, and so isn't it like Freda or something? Yes, Freda, like the German or like the, you know, German mythology. Right. And Uh kind of in that pantheon and all of that. Uh, You know, I think I want to say she's like the equivalent of Juno or Hera, but I'm not super cool on that type of mythology. So I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, But in a way, she wanted to link herself to Uh the Mexican imagination and to Mm -hmm. Mexican culture through her mother, Mm -hmm. who is fully Mexican. Mm -hmm. And so she, in order to lend herself authenticity as a Mexican artist who Mm. was painting Mexican themes and really taking sort of establishing a national identity around art, along with Diego Rivera and, you know, Siqueiros and some of the other muralists, like she uses native dress, indigenous dress as a way of connecting to culture. Um, And I think that that's really fascinating because that's, you know, appropriation with a political end. Oh, absolutely. And it served doubly to cover her, uh, her, her disability. Yeah, exactly. That's the way of putting it. Well, and and that, and yet Frida Kahlo herself mm -hmm. has become one of the most appropriated Oh my God! I could just images go off on that. <laughs> That's one thing that I'm always so yeah. I really get like uh, riled up about because it's for sale. It's a commodity in in all over Mexico oh, and yeah. like for in like the tourist traps. Everything free there. 
Um, and I totally feel like my culture, somebody that I feel connected to and like my identity has just been exploited. Well, sure. Um, Anyone with the bushy eyebrow puts a crown of flowers on their head and fills in the gap and all of a sudden they got a costume, right? Uh, yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> um, no, but I love Paisley's uh, book. I love also how it works as appropriate and appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of a tongue twister, but it, I love that uh, the double meaning. Well, cause it um, makes you think like, what is appropriate? And it's performed. When am I appropriating? <laughs> yeah. Is it, a, is it appropriate to appropriate? No. Oh snap. You link them together in one <laughs> sentence. Oh shit. But right. And then I love too, like uh, Paisley was talking to like the fantasy. Right. And then also to, the performance and on a daily basis I could I mean I I get up and basically like perform you know (laughs) either for myself or for society or for a job or whatever and I put on a certain thing that's like a blazer and I don't go to the club with a blazer you know what I mean you know so it's all performance and I've been thinking a lot about that and even like words I say and like where those words come from yeah, like I really love slang. Well, and there's but am I going to appropriate it? You know, there's an interesting tension there, right? Which is, you know, right. can you appropriate white culture, right? And mm-hmm. to some degree, like when something becomes the norm or when something could become so mm-hmm. dominant because it's become a cultural standard across the world internationally. I don't know. I think this needs to be unpacked a little bit more. Um, maybe we need to bring in a white person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we definitely don't have time on this episode. <laughs> no, we don't. Um, and and with that, at, with that end, you know, because we are, as usual, running out of time. <laughs> yeah. And it's so com- complex. It's so layered. It's such a sensitive, fine line that a lot of people are going to be reactive. Yeah. But I, I think I it's agree. a conversation we need to have. It's such an important, you know, uh, awareness that you know more what? people I, need to I'm going to say to the listeners, you know, please tweet at us or message us on Instagram, um, find us on Facebook. Let us know what you're thinking about this because there's so much to unpack. And if you want more on the topic of appropriation, we'd be happy to do another episode, but we're not sure how much interest there is out there. So please let us know, get in touch with us. And uh, we would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, on Rectal's work and on the interview that we did for sure. Um, And to that end, Carla, what are you reading? So I just picked up a new novel. Um, Do you ever read too much poetry and then think like, wow, I need to read a novel? (laughs) Yes. Um, Although I read something yesterday without giving any names or saying what book of poetry it is uh, that just kind of made me stop and just go, Uh, I love that. So, you know, something breaks through always and forever. Um, Okay. So yeah, we're all sick of poetry, whatever. Uh, Smacking things Um, (laughs) down with poetry. Uh, What what novel are you reading? Oh, so it's called Sabrina and Karina uh, by Kali Bacardo and and Steen. Oh, it's got a sticker on the cover. Was it a National Book Award finalist? Sure was. Ooh, I do love books with stickers on them. And I don't just say that because my book is a sticker on it. Um, <laughs> what about you? Um, I am, uh, for shame, reading poetry. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Um, Poetry. Not poetry. Uh, no, I've been looking at the uh, Ferrante issue um, of Asterix again, so I'm going to give that a shout out. Um, and hilariously, I am reading Joy Harjo. Um, 
<laughs> so you should know um, Joy Harjo's When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, an anthology of huh. Native Nations poetry, and it is uh, phenomenal. I'm reading a couple poems a day, and it just... It just makes me, I think, center what it is that I take for granted and really try to appreciate. And that's something that, you know, a lot of poetry that is rooted in nature and that is rooted in the physical world really makes me too. Wow. Yes, totally. I love that. So more poetry. (laughs) I know. (laughs) No, down with poetry. That's, uh, That's what it's about. And honestly, that's what keeps me inspired and motivated just to, to tackle every day and everything that we have to confront um just as humans on a daily basis you know? and, oh, yeah. and yeah to 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 return to you know uh, i don't know the inner workings or our, our interior lives just to connect but anyhow yeah this is, has been a, an incredible conversation and Yay. i've learned so much so for and, the road what, what do we got well, coming up uh, later this month on June 30th, uh, City of Asylum is partnering with Real Q Pittsburgh, uh, the LGBTQ film festival organization based in Pittsburgh. And on Wednesday, June 30th, they uh, were screening a French film. And I don't want to butcher the Let's title. Let's do it. Let's no, do it no, together. Don't make, don't make me do it. Uh, La Première Marche. La Marche. Première Marche. Okay, yeah, you're so much better at it. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so it's basically about um, the Pride March um, in Paris. So 50 years after the Stonewall Uprising, the um, uh, activists paved the way for LGBT struggles in a territory no one has dared think of, um, raising new issues such as intersectionality in Paris. So um, awesome. Yeah, so check it out. Go to cityofasylum.org or alphabetcity.org and there you'll find information on the Real Q Film Festival. This yeah. is so exciting. All right. Well, thank you for hanging out with us and for talking about what's appropriate when it comes to appropriation. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Adios. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez, committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation. Charla Cultural is hosted by Carla Lamb and Adriana E. Ramirez. Voice of Goddess is Alexis Jabour. Editorial support by Clarissa A. Leon. Production design and brand management by Little Owl Creative. Our theme song is Colombia Folk by Luis Alfonso. And thank you as always to our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.